Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Kate Darling. Kate is a research specialist at the MIT Media Lab. Kate, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We met not too long back at the AWS Remars Conference or Amazon Remars Conference, uh, where you did a great presentation on uh, some of your research into human and robot interactions. And I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into that. But let, let's start with the kind of broad brush look at the field. You're a leading expert in robot ethics. Uh, what exactly is robot ethics and why is it important? <laughs> That's a great question. So robot ethics sounds very science fiction-y, um, very, you know, iRobot Blade Runner-esque. But um, when I talk about robot ethics, what I really mean is the ethical use of robotic technologies. And um, part of that is, you know, how we in integrate technology into the workforce, how we think about responsibility for harm in all sorts of contexts, whether that's automated weapon systems or automated vehicles or other types of automated technology. But the main thing I'm interested in in the sphere of robot ethics is the social aspect of integrating robots that seem very lifelike to people. So I'm really interested in the ways that people treat robots like they're alive, even though they know that they're just machines and what sort of ethical um, issues can arise from that. And how did you get interested in this field? What's your, your background and what led you to this area of focus? <laughs> so I, um, I originally studied law and social sciences and I did uh, law and economics and intellectual property but I think that my interest has always been in how systems shape behavior. So, you know, if you look at the law as a system or economics as a system, or now I'm really focused on technology as a system um, and how it shapes human behavior. And I think what really got me interested in robots in particular was this one moment where I was, I was in law school and I bought this baby dinosaur robot called a Pleo. They don't make them anymore, but it was this really cool toy that had this kind of lifelike behavior. And one of the things it did was mimic pain very well. So like if you held it up by the tail, it had a tilt sensor and it knew that it was upside down. So it would start to cry and squirm around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's super cute. And, and, um, and it was really cool, like for the, the toy that it was at the time. So I would show it off to people and I would be like, hold it up by the tail, see what it does. And um, people would hold it up. And after a while, it started to bother me when they held it up too long. <laughs> and I would tell them to put it back down. <laughs> I'd say, that's enough now. <laughs> and um, that was really interesting to me because I knew exactly how the toy worked, but I still felt this empathy for it when it was crying. And I was like, that's weird. And then I started looking into this more and I discovered the whole field of human-robot interaction that looks at how people interact with robotic technology. And a lot of it is studies that, you know, border on psychology and look at, you know, people's tendency to treat these machines like living things um, and how to, you know, tweak that. So I got very interested in that. And I started coming at it, though, from the perspective of 
okay, clearly we do this, but what does this mean in the broader context of a society where we're increasingly integrating robots into shared spaces? You have several of these Plio robots to this day. Um, I think you showed some photos of, of them in your presentation, and we'll make sure to either include or link to uh, some of those photos in the, in the show notes. Yeah, they're very cute. So in, in, you kind of mentioned the increasing role of robots in our day to day lives as, you know, we're transitioning from a world where they, you know, the primary experience that most folks had with robots was if they work with them, like industrial types of robots. And now we're starting to see these, you know, robots that are in stores guiding people around or your robot baristas, things like that. You know, how is the, you know, the study of human robot interaction practically applied to, you know, this new world that we're uh, evolving into? Well, yeah. So like you said, you know, we're, we're very familiar with industrial robots. We've had those for a long time, but what's happening right now is that robots are coming into workplaces and households and public spaces, um, you know, stores. And right now the technology is still very crude. I, I know like my mom recently had an encounter with a robot in stop and shop that she was not happy with. <laughs> she was like, this oh, really? is creepy and it's beeping and I don't like it. Um, but I, I think it's a matter of time before the design gets better and more compelling and people um, actually, you know, start to accept robots in their shared spaces. I think it's inevitable that this is going to happen. Um, I also think it's inevitable that we're going to be working more with robotic technology because I know the media likes to talk about how robots are taking all the jobs. Um, and that's true in some cases, jobs that are very, very easily automated. But in most cases, robots aren't good replacements for humans and they have a very different type of skill set. So what is actually happening is that we're going to see more um, technology that people have to work with. And uh, human-robot interaction helps to study how people interact with that technology and how to design it in a way that they might trust it or even enjoy working with it instead of just saying, oh, this, you know, this machine is threatening to me or it doesn't work. It made a mistake and I don't like it. Um, Human-robot interaction is um, oftentimes about designing the technology in a way that is more palatable to people and that people might even you know, like to work with. And it's also about finding um, use cases for the technology that uh, we might not even have. So it's not just about, you know, workplace integration, but there are also some applications in health and education that are really interesting where we're starting to see social robots being used as replacements for animal therapy, for example, um, in contexts where we can't use real animals or robots that are working with autistic children and engaging them in ways that we haven't seen before. So uh, a lot of pretty, pretty cool things happening in human-robot interaction uh, so I think it's I think it's a very useful field of study uh, for this day and age. Yeah, one of the aspects of human robot interaction that you study is, um, or at least the result of it is kind of this exploration of human empathy in those kind of scenarios. And you've done a number of experiments 
to explore that, including, I think, involving these Pleo robots. Can you uh, talk a little bit about some of the experiments that you've done? Yeah, sure. So the Pleo, I haven't actually done any scientific experiments with the Pleo robots because they're very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) And the experiments I've done usually involve um, destroying the robot. So, but I, the, what inspired the experimental work was a workshop that I did with five of these baby dinosaur plios with my friend Hannes Gosselt, where we took the baby dinosaur robots. We made five groups of people. These were all adults. They're at a conference. Uh, we had like five teams of six people each and each team got a robot and they named it and they had to interact with it and play with it for like 45 minutes. And then we unveiled a hammer and a hatchet and we told them to torture and kill the robots. And, um, it was really interesting. <laughs> like we, you, of, you, it seems like you're getting uncomfortable just at the thought of torturing and killing these plios. Well, it's, um, it was really, really interesting to see that people were more uncomfortable than I expected them to be. Like we, uh-huh. we thought that some people would be like, yeah, sure. It's just a robot. I'll take this hatchet to it. And some people would be like, no, don't do it. And instead, um, in this particular group, everyone refused to even hit the robots. So we actually had to improvise in the workshop. And at some point we were like, okay, you can save your team's robot. If you destroy another team's robot, (laughs) they tried to do that and they couldn't do that either. And, you know, finally we threatened to destroy all the robots unless someone took a hatchet to one of them. And, you know, it was this very like half joking, half serious discomfort that people felt, um, when, when the robot kind of got (laughs) destroyed by this hatchet Mm -hmm. and there was actually a moment of silence in the room for the fallen robot. So it was just this very interesting, very dramatic, very not scientific experiment, um, day, that we had. And that inspired some later research that I did at MIT with Palash Nandi and Cynthia Brazil. And for those experiments, we weren't using cute baby dinosaur robots, um, in part because of the cost, like I mentioned, but in part also because we wanted to choose something that people don't immediately, you know, bond with and respond to. So we chose hex bugs, which are this toy. Um, it, it's small, it moves around in a really lifelike way, like a bug, and we had people come into the lab and smash them with mallets. And um, we wanted to know two things. We wanted to know, would people hesitate more if we gave the hex bug a name and kind of a backstory? So if we said, this is Frank, and Frank's favorite color is red, and he likes to play. And the other thing we wanted to know was whether people's hesitation correlated in any way to their natural tendencies for empathy. So we did this psychological empathy test with them, and we found that people who scored low on the test for empathic concern, um, they would hesitate much less (laughs) than the other people. They would just hit Frank. And the people who scored very high on the empathic concern test would hesitate much more or even refuse to hit the hex bugs. So it was, you know, it was a little study, but um, it was kind of interesting because it indicates that, you know, we might even be able to measure people's empathy using robots, which is kind of like a, a, a weird turn on the Voight-Kampff test from Blade Runner. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. I don't remember the details of it. So in Blade Runner, you have uh, robots that look just like humans. And so to tell whether someone is a robot or a human, they do this empathy test where they 
they tell them these stories and see how they react to them. And so our version of that is we can see how empathic you are as a human by telling you stories about a robot and seeing how you react to that. So it's mm. kind of, it was, it's fun. Was it your presentation that showed a video of kids and a, like a mall security robot and some of the dynamics that occurred or, or did I see that uh, separately? Do you know the video that I'm referring to? I know this video. I did. I have not shown this video, um, but I have talked about the study. This is the okay. one in Japan, right? Uh, where... I don't remember where it takes place, but the, the basic idea was they were, at least the thing that I remember is they were, you know, if there were multiple kids or no parents around, they were identifying the situations in which, you know, kids would come to abuse this security robot and, you know, things like multiple kids around and no parents uh, were kind of key indicators. Yeah. And they ended up, it was so funny. They, because the paper is essentially about the solution that they found for preventing the security mall robot from getting beat up by the kids. <laughs> right. Which is they made it avoid people below a certain height and move towards taller people. <laughs> because <laughs> they figure, okay, if there is an adult nearby, they'll intervene and stop the kids from like, verbally and physically abusing the robot was kind of funny um it's it's really like it's the video is funny it's like terrifying and (laughs) funny at the same time and and do you interpret when you see that video do you interpret it through the lens of kind of the the empathy results of some of your experiments well so my question when i look at that is if you're a parent um do you intervene to stop your kid from beating up the robot for reasons other than just respecting property. Mm, Like, mm -hmm. is there a reason to worry that your kid might, you know, learn that it's okay to treat something that responds in a lifelike way um, violently? And could that like translate to their behavior towards other children or animals or things that are alive? And so that's, we don't know the answer to that um, by any means. It's something that I think needs to be explored but I also wonder about it in the context of adults even, you know, how muddled is it in our subconscious to treat something that's designed to respond in a really lifelike way um, violently? Is that a healthy outlet for violent behavior? Or is that, um, as my friend once said, training your cruelty muscles? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know. It's like, it's, it's the same question as violence in video games, except that for video games, we seem to have landed on, oh, you know, adults can compartmentalize when it's on a screen. Uh, Children we're not so sure about, so we restrict it there. But robots bring this to a very new, very visceral level because of the physicality. We're very physical creatures. There's Mm -hmm. lots of research that shows that we we respond differently to something in our space than to something on a screen. And so um, it seems like we might want to ask that question again. Well, also with video games, the question comes up more often than not when the thing that we're being violent against is another human uh, or a thing that's supposed to be a human, whereas we don't often see humanoid robots kind of roaming around uh, in in real life. <laughs> that's very, true. Very few of us have the opportunity to interact with things that are anywhere close to humanoid robots. That is true. It's funny how people always leap to humanoid robots. Like, I think we have this tendency to constantly compare robots to humans. And, mm. and I also admit that a lot of people are trying to build humanoid robots. Like, that is definitely a fascination that is there. 
But I like when I think about life like robots, I think about all sorts of different designs. Like, you know, if you, I don't know if you've seen the baby seal robot that they use with the dementia patients. No. Oh, it's like, it's a super cute, it's been around for a long time, like at least a decade. And it's used as a therapeutic device in nursing homes. And they, it, it's this like baby harp seal that is furry and you pet it and it doesn't talk to you or do anything that, you know, might disappoint your expectations like a humanoid robot would because they're just not good yet. It just, you know, responds to your touch. It makes these little sounds. So, uh, and it's very effective. And so I think that even though we're not in a place where we have, you know, robots that look like in Westworld or Blade Runner, where we can't tell the difference, we are starting to see design that we certainly treat like a living thing. Um, right. You know, even though it's clearly not smart. Right. Uh, right. And so part of your, your thesis perhaps is that our interactions with these things speak to empathy in the same way that our interactions with animals you know, speak to some kind of fundamental empathy, even though they're not human. Yeah. So I actually think animals are a really, really great analogy in this context. Um, Like, obviously, animals are alive and they experience things and they feel pain, um, which robots absolutely do not. But I think one of the commonalities here is that throughout history, we've treated most animals like tools and products and not really cared about their inner worlds. And then there are just some animals that we've kind of bonded with and made our companions and treated with more kindness. And if you look at the history of the animal rights movement, this doesn't seem to really have anything to do with, you know, inherent biological criteria. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It has more to do with what we relate to. Like people didn't care about whales until the moment that someone recorded them singing and suddenly you have this save the whales movement mm. and and you know this huge movement started back in the 70s because suddenly these were creatures that we could relate to and when really? i look at how yeah yeah huh. i actually just met the guy who discovered whale song it was very um i was i was very very much fangirling it was amazing <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But like I, when I look at how we treat robots, I can see this going in a very similar direction where, you know, we treat most of them like tools and products. And some of them we really want to treat like our pets. And I think we're going to start to do that. You mentioned earlier uh, trust, in, you know, the, the human robot trust relationship. And it reminded me of my conversation with Ayanna Howard back in uh, February of last year, number 110 uh, podcast. And we, you know, one of the things that she talked about was some of her research in that area and how uh, humans would, you know, essentially blindly follow, you know, these uh, robots, like, for example, robots that are supposed to guide them out of a a burning building, Um, you know, in spite of the fact that the robots are doing you know, they're obviously broken in some way, like they're <laughs> banging into a wall or something like that. And as humans waiting around for them to, you know, give them guidance. Have you, uh, is that research you're familiar with? And, and how does that relate to any of your work? Yeah. So, yeah, I love Ayana's work. And um, it's, it's very interesting. There is something that we call automation bias that is this trust that people place in robots or AI systems um, because 
it, in, in, in certain cases, we place a lot of trust in these systems because we assume that they have the right answers and that they're not biased and that they're not going to, you know, make a mistake. Um, the way that we trust a calculator to add numbers. So Madeline Ellish is someone who's done work on um, taking some of that research and looking at how it applies um, societally in the world and also on a policy level because she's, for example, what's that name um, again? Madeline Ellish. Madeline, Madeline Ellish. Ellish. Okay. She's at Data and Society in New York, um, I believe. She oh, love her work. You should totally interview her. Um, she so she's looked at, for example, the fact that when there are a machine and a human working together, so you have a human in the loop and something goes wrong, that was totally the machine's fault. The human usually gets blamed for it. Mm. So we have this over-reliance on, on machines that is in some cases really unwarranted. And it's not really clear what to do about that because technology keeps getting more and more complex. And so sometimes you can't have that education or that transparency that really um, lets people understand the limitations of the technology. Uh, but I also think that it's um, some of it is because we we currently, maybe thanks to science fiction and pop culture, kind of overestimate what the technology can do. Um, I see that a lot, that people kind of think that we're much further along in robotics and artificial intelligence development than we actually are. Um, and I, I think that's also a problem of science communications and the media in general. So... Mm -hmm. It's definitely an issue that, um, you know, needs to be addressed. Yeah, and this comes up in some of my conversations with folks uh, on the, the business or enterprise side, just in thinking about how to address kind of statistical illiteracy and numeracy within organizations and trying to raise the level of understanding of, you know, as we're adopting more and more of these ML and AI systems within organizations, you know, what it means that these uh, systems are, you know, based on statistical models and pattern matching and are probabilistic. Um, and uh, uh, many organizations are spending a lot of energy trying to come up with new and innovative ways to educate folks that don't kind of think about systems in this way. It kind of sounds like we're going to need to do this on a, a broader societal scale as these systems get more and more integrated into the way things work. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's been so there's this um, group called the Personal Robots Group at the Media Lab that I do a lot of work with. And um, one of their students, Blakely Payne, is working on an AI ethics curriculum for middle schoolers. And it's really great. Like she's going to middle schools and she's doing these exercises with the kids where, for, for example, like they look at, you know, a YouTube recommendation algorithm and then they have to, you know, put themselves in the place of the different stakeholders in the system and not only understand how it works, but who it works for. And so they really learn to kind of question what's going on and think critically about it in, in a really uh, good way. But they, you know, they're getting overwhelmed with requests from people like all over the place, you know, companies, you know, um, everyone is like, how do we adapt this to use, 
in our organization because we need this too. Like this isn't just for middle schoolers. Like everyone needs this education right now. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to scale as fast as they can, but it is, it, you know, there's a massive amount of interest in this. And I think it's, it's very important and people are starting to realize that. Interesting. And so some of your work, maybe going back to the empathy conversation relates to the different ways that humans anthropomorphize robots and the the different implications of that. And there's some policy implications that you've looked at. Can you talk a little bit about that sphere? Yeah. So (laughs) my main interest is the anthropomorphism of robots. So people, you know, projecting lifelike qualities onto the robots and, um, there are some pundits in technology ethics who claim that this is a bad thing and that we need to discourage it. And I, I, um, I see some concerns that we might want to have about the fact that people treat robots like their lives. So for example, um, if, (laughs) if, you know, the persuasive design folks get their hands on robots and, you know, start to try to manipulate people, um, for, you know, corporate interest and try to get them to, you know, buy products and services or reveal more personal data than they would ever willingly enter into a database through, you know, interacting with, you know, a social robot in the home, for example, then I think that's maybe a consumer protection issue that we might want to think about a little bit. You know, there's a lot of privacy concerns, manipulation concerns, but I don't think that it's inherently a bad thing um, because there are so many great use cases for this as well. And, um, so those are, I mean, those are some questions that are popping up, but I'm also interested in, you know, this question that we touched on earlier of, you know, is it a bad thing for people to treat lifelike objects in a violent way? Um, we don't have the answer to that, but uh, it's already coming up in some policy questions. So for example, uh, there's some discussion of whether sex robots are something that should be banned because they encourage certain behaviors in people or whether they're something that should be encouraged because they, you know, are an outlet for behaviors that we, you know, don't want, um, to be levied against real people. So it's, there's, there are already, you know, policy questions being thrown around without any actual, you know, evidence behind them and a lot of moral panic, especially in the area of sex technology that, you know, (laughs) are already becoming very relevant. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I do think that if we found evidence that, you know, it's somehow desensitizing to people to be violent towards robots, that we might need to have some legislation that says, you know, you can't torture a certain kind of robot, um, in the same way that, you know, we don't allow torture of animals, even though we still allow people to, you know, kill animals and do, but you can't, you know, set a kitten on fire and throw it, you know, in a bag. And, you know, there are certain things that we're, that just, we're not comfortable with. And this but might- there are totally different them. reasons behind that, right? With the kitten, it's because we, uh, the kitten is uh, a creature that, you know, experiences pain and all of that kind of thing with the robot the rationale would need to be much more about us than, you know, the target of our violence. Absolutely. And that's why I think it should be purely evidence-based. Like if we have evidence that is desensitizing the people, then, you know, maybe we need a solution for it. But that said, I'm also not convinced that 
when it comes to animals that we truly, truly care about their pain. Um, because mm. there are certain animals that we're perfectly willing to torture, um, for our own benefit. Like it's obvious that, you know, animals like chickens feel pain, but you know, <laughs> we keep them in these, in these, uh, you know, cooped up spaces. We chop off their beaks so that they can't peck each other's eyes out cause they're going crazy in these cooped up spaces. We torture plenty of animals for our own benefit, even though we know that, you know, there's no biological difference between a horse and a cow that would justify us eating one of them in America and not the other. And yet people are appalled when you suggest eating horse meat here. Um, it, I think there are a lot of reasons that we protect animals that are actually about us. <laughs> mm. And as much as we don't like to hear that, I think that the way that we're interacting with robots is kind of making that very apparent. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, this, this part of the conversation reminds me of this, uh, this device that I saw at CES earlier this year, uh, Bot Boxer. It's like this robotic boxing training thing. And, you know, the the device as presented was basically a punching bag um, that kind of, you know, had some behaviors in it to evade you and that kind of thing. But it makes me wonder, like, if the thing was you know, one of these humanoid punching bags and made painful sounds, like what the implications are vis-a-vis uh, -vis this discussion. Um, just, it creates all kinds of interesting thought experiments. It does. Oh, yeah, that is interesting. But also, you know, if it's not, if we're not subconsciously treating that boxing punching bag like a human opponent, then it's not a good training device. So, you know, it, it, to some extent that relies on this kind of subconscious, um, treating it like a person. And, you know, I think, you know, there are plenty of situations where, it, like I'm, I'm, I would never argue that, you know, because boxing exists as a sport that people who box, you know, might be more likely to hit other people. I think we're very good at compartmentalizing in that type of way. Mm -hmm. Um, it is, you know, with children, it is, there are some questions, you know, I have a toddler myself. And so I'm starting to have to deal with things like if he pulls the robot cat's tail, we have a robot cat at home. Um, do I stop him from doing that? Because I don't want him to learn that it's okay to pull a real cat's tail. And there are a lot of stories, even with like the very primitive kind of voice assistants we have today, you know, there are stories of older kids where parents are like, you know, um, Amazon's Alexa is turning my child into an asshole because she doesn't require you to say please and thank you. You can just bark commands at her. And so my kid now thinks that's okay to do to anyone. And there were so many complaints to Amazon that they actually released a feature that you can turn on where Alexa will require please and thank you. <laughs> so huh. we don't have scientific evidence that it has an effect on kids' behavior um, that translates to, you know, how they interact with the world, but it, there is some anecdotal um, concern, at least, <laughs> that we might want to be a little bit careful because interacting with these machines is subconsciously like interacting with, uh, you know, a social agent, uh, like another person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of the, you know, don't let your kids play with uh, fake cell phones or, or your animals, for that matter, because then they'll just destroy your real ones. Um, but you know, it seems like that 
at least in that case, like there's some age in which you age range in which you have to worry about that. But at some point, there's a level of maturity in which they realize the difference between this plastic thing that kind of looks like a phone and the actual real phone that you get upset about if they throw around. Oh, sure. Kids are smart. And like, right, we have right. a lot of kids, like a lot of the roboticists who work in the media lab have kids and the kid, their kids come into the lab and they totally know how the robots work and that the robots don't feel anything and yada, yada. And yet they're still treating them like friends. Um, and even, even the roboticists will do it. Like, it's really funny. Like, uh, uh, you know, um, our study with the hex bugs, our participants were mostly MIT undergrads. So people who have a lot of tech literacy and we still found an effect. And I've seen, you know, I've seen effects in, myself and others who know perfectly well how their robots work and will still kind of treat them. It's it's very hard to not go with that instinct to treat the robot like an agent because we're biologically hardwired to perceive <laughs> the type of movement and interaction that these robots have as a social interaction. And so we like immediately slip into treating the robot like, uh, you know, an agent instead of an object and even adults who are completely tech literate aren't immune from that effect so you know kids are smart like they they know but you know my workshop with the adults who refuse to harm the robotic baby dinosaur shows that even if you know it might not matter right 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 i'm curious what's the example of the most you know either the most you know, human-like or kind of empathy-producing or just interesting in general kind of robots that you've, you know, seen out there? I'm imagining it's not Sophia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, I think the humanoid ones are actually not as empathy-engendering because there's this thing in robotic design um, that some people call the uncanny valley. I call it expectation management, where if you're comparing like say you take a humanoid robot or my shitty cat robot that I have at home like these are things that are designed to try and look as closely to a human or as closely to a cat as possible so when they behave you're expecting them to behave exactly like the thing that they're trying to mimic and as soon as they don't do that they make some like different movement or you know utterance it breaks the illusion and you're no longer suspending your disbelief and it kind of disappoints your expectations. And so I think that the, the most successful social robots actually have very different shapes and forms. I think the baby dinosaur works because no one's ever actually interacted with a baby dinosaur before. So it's kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll believe that a baby Camarasaurus moves in this way. Um, you know, I'll, I'll totally imagine that. Um, uh, but even like, have you seen Jibo at all? Uh, which one is Jibo? So Jibo, Jibo, unfortunately, um, the company no longer exists, but they had this very successful Kickstarter or Indiegogo where, um, it's, it's, it's just, it's one of those, um, home assistant robots like Amazon Alexa, except it ha it looks a little bit like a Pixar lamp. It has oh, a I remember that. body and a yeah. face and has this animated like circle that just, it's very, very simple and very, very compelling. Like the little movements that it makes, it just makes you feel like you're interacting with, you know, something that has a character instead of 
just an, an object. And those, I think, are th- those are the most successful robots in kind of engendering people's empathy. Have you explored anything related to these um, telepresence robots, like the the uh, kind of iPad on a Segway things that people can use to be remotely present in meetings and that kind of thing? Yeah, so I haven't done any work on that, but I have heard some interesting stories about how people, you know, people will you know, Skype in or whatever you do to the telepresence robot. And if someone in that physical space comes up and like picks up the robot and moves it because it's uh-huh. in the way, people have reported that they feel like violated, like physically huh. violated, even though they're only Skyping into it. Um, wow. Or if somebody's standing too close to it or whatever. So I, I think there's a lot to unpack there and explore, um, especially as these get more robot like so so far they haven't they've been kind of like just remote controlled you know iPads on wheels but i think as they develop more autonomous capabilities it'll be interesting to see you know the intersection of people's feelings of autonomy while they're you know quote unquote inside the thing and how you know the robot is interacting with the world so uh that's that's definitely a very interesting area i think yeah as you describe that I can almost that it becomes almost tangible for me that feeling of kind of anxiety of being you know someone just kind of you know quote unquote manhandling my virtual self (laughs) also makes me think about like uh what am I thinking I guess the zoom is kind of the example that I'm thinking of if you like yeah, we've got one Zoom account that we share among a few people and like it'll kick people out of a room if somebody comes in and like takes over it. And I'm thinking about like the, you know, multiple humans like struggling to take control over this virtual robot and like, you know, all kinds of issues related to like the hierarchy of being able to use this thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, the intersection of psychology and how we're using technology is really, I I think it's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So what are the things that are kind of on the top of your list of, you know, exciting things that are happening, really interesting work, you know, besides the stuff that you're doing that folks should check out? Um, I'm personally really excited. This is not my own work. Um, there have been some advances in the research with autistic children. So a long time ago, researchers in social robots and social robotics found out that autistic kids will respond really well to social robots and they'll engage with them more than they will with, you know, an adult, a teacher, a caregiver. Um, but not only that, the kids, when, when you bring them into a room and have them interact with the robot, they'll also interact more with the person who's in the room with them. So suddenly they'll be making more eye contact, answering more questions than they were before. So it's a really great kind of facilitating device. And they're not quite sure how or why this works. But what's um, interesting going on right now is that just um, last year, they published the first long-term study where they actually put robots in the homes of children who are on the spectrum and did a longer term study where the kids were interacting with the robot for half an hour every day together with their caregiver. And then, um, after about a month, they saw like a dramatic increase in the social skills that they were looking to, to kind of encourage in the kids. And so like really 
thousands and thousands of dollars worth of therapy just from, you know, interacting with this robot. So I think there's so much promise in that area. And um, I'm really excited to see what other work comes out of there. Oh, that's pretty fascinating. You said they're not, we're not sure kind of how or why any hints or indications. Well, I think so the, the leading researcher in that space, um, Brian Scuzzolotti, who's at Yale, he thinks that it's because the kids um, view the robot as a social actor. So something that they engage with socially, but it doesn't come with the baggage of another child or another adult, you know, Mm. because they also understand that it's a robot. So that's, that's their best guess for why this is having a a pretty strong effect on these kids, but it's pretty cool because it's something, it's a tool that we haven't, you know, had previously. And now we do. Mm -hmm. Cool. Anything else that we should check out? I don't think so. You should check out Blakely's AI ethics curriculum. Blakely okay. Payne. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll definitely link to that. Very cool work. Uh, and then you mentioned earlier uh, the possible opportunities to kind of abuse the human-robot interaction and persuasive design. Like, have you seen anything there that kind of, you know, put your, put your radar up or that um, folks should be aware of as kind of a negative example of how this kind of technology or the, the, the interactions are being taken advantage of? So I haven't seen anything. Um, I, 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 you know, I don't think that social robots right now are, you know, pervasive enough for this to be a problem, but I, I see it on the horizon because, you know, if you think about it, you know, a sex robot that has in-app purchases, you know, is that okay? Or is that too manipulative Mm, or, mm -hmm. I can think of a million examples or even just so Sony came out with a new robot dog, the Ibo, which I really want one. I'm probably going to get one. Um, but they're not only are they very expensive, but they require a monthly subscription to huh. the cloud services. Oh, wow. And I don't know what functionality you lose if you stop paying for that. But it's kind of interesting because um, we know from the older Ibos that people really treated these robots like a pet and like they were part of the family. And so that does seem like a little bit of maybe manipulating an emotional connection if you're going to charge a monthly fee to keep this robot going. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can imagine the the. Uh, loss prevention emails, you know, don't let your IBO die kind of thing. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> they should hire you as a consultant. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that that doesn't that seems to be on the other side of some line. <laughs> uh, well, Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Really, really fascinating conversation. And uh, I'm looking forward to following along with your work. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.